It's the 13th of October, 2019, and this is episode 416 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Dr. Robert Murphy, arguably my favorite Austrian economist. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, we really appreciate you being here today, Bob. There are a couple of things I want to talk to you about, but I realize that we actually haven't had you on the show yet. And so we kind of wanted to dig into your background just a little bit before we get into today's topics. Yes. And I would like to introduce Bob. Uh, By the way, there's no relation between us, even though we have the same last name. (laughs) It's a great name, I mean. But uh, Bob is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute and also an economist. He's written many books. His latest book is Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. And Keynesian is a type of economist, of course, as we're going to get into. And his other books include Chaos Theory, which we might be talking about a little bit later on the show. Bob also hosts a couple of radio shows, podcasts. One is Contra Krugman with Tom Woods, and then also the Bob Murphy Show. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It's overdue. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Bob, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show was because we've been talking about reserve currencies a lot on the show lately and kind of like transitioning into and out of reserve currencies when they change. Obviously, this has applications to not only like fiat currencies around the world, but cryptocurrencies as well. And we thought you might have some insights on that. And Adam specifically had some questions he wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, broadly speaking, I've tried to look at this problem from a couple of different ways, because my big feeling in cryptocurrency has been for a while that really what we're doing isn't so much creating new technologies that are going to succeed because they're obviously better than everything else. We're creating new technologies that can be pivoted to when the current technologies that we're using for various ways that we track ownership fail. And specifically, this comes into play when we start talking about money. I think that a lot of people look at the current economy, you know, from a global basis, not to speak of from just kind of a U.S. centric view and are confused by what's going on. Because on the one hand, it seems like things are as good as they've ever been. But then if you actually look at any of the specifics, the specifics are not as good as they've ever been. And in fact, most of them are pretty darn bad. So before we kind of get into the more specific reserve currencies topic, As an Austrian economist, how do you look at the current situation? And when you look at the world around you, what kind of situation are you seeing right now? The first thing to say is economists who are very confident about they know what's going to happen over the next two or three years, I think they're bluffing because the stuff that the central banks around the world have done, it's literally unprecedented. And so, you know, it's not that we can just say, oh, yeah, this happened back in 78. And then this happened, you know, so that's part of what's going on here. So I, as you guys mentioned, am adherent to the Austrian School of Economics, and they have a theory of what causes the boom-bust cycle that, very quickly and loosely speaking here, is saying that when central banks and the commercial banking system in general, the way it works in the modern world, inject credit into the market that's not backed up by genuine saving, that pushes down interest rates. And you know that's the point. That's what the mainstream press likes. Oh, the Fed cut interest rates today. You know, Give a shot in the arm to the economy, that kind of mentality. And in the Austrian view, that's not doing the economy any favors. You know, interest rates are prices. They convey information. And so if the interest rate gets pushed artificially low, that screws things up. And specifically, it causes entrepreneurs to make male investments, to invest in the wrong line. Certain projects with a long time horizon are profitable to lower interest rate. But if the interest rate's low just because the central bank created money and injected it, 
then that signal's wrong. You don't want people investing in that line, but yet they do. And so that gives rise to this unsustainable boom, and then there's a crash. So using that framework, I and several other Austrian economists, we knew that this crisis that hit in 2008 was going to be bad. You know, I have an article up at Mises.org in October of 2007, 11 months before that crisis hit, saying this could be the worst recession in 25 years, right? So just to give an idea that this framework, we have used it before and it worked well. So if that's even part of what's going on here, what central banks have done since the 08 crisis, you know, dwarfs anything that happened during the housing bubble years. And so my view is they've just totally screwed up capital allocation. Entrepreneurs were making all sorts of investments that they shouldn't have been doing during this last, you know, decade, basically. So that's kind of my overall view of where things are. And as you say, Adam, it's funny that on paper, for example, like the U.S. economy in particular, wow, CPI measured inflation is really tame. Unemployment is at some of the lowest levels since the 60s, the official employment rate. Everything's great. And yet now all of a sudden the Fed is cutting rates again. Why are they doing that if on paper everything's great? It's because everybody knows that you know they get a sinking feeling in their stomach. They know that something is really screwed up fundamentally, interest rates being negative, you know, short-term rates and even longer-term rates, depending on which country over in Europe and Japan. So this is a very odd situation. And since I think what's largely caused it is central banks effectively creating money out of thin air, and you know, in terms of my economic training, that's not the source of prosperity. I think that the central banks have set the advanced world up for a major crash. So relative to kind of what we've seen in response to these financial crises over the last 20 years, you know, what would the Austrian approach have been to deal with these things? What we saw in practice was basically, you know, continuations of bubbles, right? And as you said, money was made cheaper so that reality sort of didn't have to come into play and market forces couldn't actually exert market forces in ways that would be detrimental to certain firms. So if that wasn't the correct way to do this, what would have been the correct path forward from the Austrian perspective? I think the best way to answer your question is to very briefly contrast the Austrian and the Keynesian view. So as Stephanie mentioned, you know, Paul Krugman is an arch Keynesian named after John Maynard Keynes. So the Keynesians, they diagnose recessions as being a lack of demand, right? Oh, people aren't spending enough. And so, hey, for whatever reason, people get spooked or, you know, the housing bubble collapsed. Now consumers are saving too much because they got to rebuild their net worth. And if people just aren't spending, then businesses don't need to make as much stuff. They lay off workers. It's a vicious spiral. So in the Keynesian view, when the crash happens, when you're in the bust, that's when they start looking around for saying, what should the government and the Fed do to help? The Austrian view, it's the other way around. The Austrians say the problem occurred during the boom period the period of apparent prosperity, that's when all of these mistaken investments were being made that were unsustainable. And so once you have a boom that's been underway for several years, the Austrians say a crash is going to have to come. And the question is just, are the policymakers going to sit back and let it run its natural course? And yep, it'll be bad for you know a year, 18 months, but we'll hit rock bottom. Market prices will be correct. People who made bad investments will go out of business as they should. And then, you know, we'll rebuild on a solid foundation and the capital will be in the hands of the people that were more responsible during the, you know, heady boom times. So that's what the Austrians would do. So like, yeah, in the fall of 2008, if Ron Paul or somebody had been president and, you know, advising them, the Fed had to do what they say, they would have not really done much and there would have been an awful crash and it would have been bad, but it, you know, it's sort of like ripping off the Band-Aid or, you know, it's to stop drinking and you have a hangover and you don't just keep drinking more, whatever metaphor you want to use. But the point is, as you say, by just pumping in money, all the central banks did was postpone 
the reckoning and they're going to make it that much worse. So the Austrian view, if at any one of those things that they'd stop pumping in money, that would have ended the cycle. So it would have been a period of pain, but then from that point forward, the interest rates would have been correct and you wouldn't have had this artificial boom period. Because in the Keynesian view, the last way I'll put it is the way the Keynesian mentality deals with a recession is to do the very things that set us up for the next crash. So the cycle will never end if you keep going down that path. Whereas the Austrians, if they just would stop at some point and endure the recession that would really only take a year, maybe 18 months tops, then it'd be out of the system. And from that point forward, the growth would be sustainable and genuine. So you said people will go out of business as they should. And I think that's a really important point. And you also, you know, we're talking about the cycle allowing people to fail. One of the things that I think intuitively I've been feeling about all of this is that it's kind of like our leaders were like, well, we're not going to allow any failures. And so in effect, what they did is they rolled together things that would have failed with things that wouldn't have failed. And then they made it so that at the point that the system you know, continues going, the problem continues to accelerate. Well, now all of those things that they rolled in would fail and then they do it again. And this seems to be a thing where, you know, you start with the company level, you move up to the national government level, you are now moving up to the supranational government level, perhaps. Is there a doubling down thing that's going on? Is that like an accurate kind of high level way to look at what's happening here? Yeah. And you're going to perhaps think I'm just kissing up to the host here. But yeah, what you just said is very similar to the way I've tried to, you know, give when I give public presentations on this stuff to get the audience to track where I'm coming from. And so, you know, I'll say, Back, you know, in the late 90s, 1990s, you know, there was the dot-com boom and bust or the tech bubble. And because that was deemed to be too painful, Alan Greenspan came in in 2000, 2001 and slashed interest rates. And that gave us the housing bubble because, oh, no, we couldn't possibly just sit back and let all these tech companies crash and the NASDAQ go under and lose trillions of dollars of wealth. So they gave us the housing bubble. And then the 2008 crisis that happened because of the housing bubble, now it wasn't just the NASDAQ going down and certain tech companies going down, it was major investment banks that would have gone down like Goldman Sachs. And that was deemed unacceptable pain. So then they came in. And so I think the next crisis, it's going to be governments like the Italian government is going to be the one that, gee, if we don't intervene, that's going down. And so probably the ECB will be the primary you know, backstop and the Fed will backstop the ECB. And then I think the next crisis, it'll be the euro will be the thing that's now on the line. So I think you're right. It just keeps getting kicked up to the next level. And at some point, it might not be this next one, it might be two crises from now, it'll be the dollar that's the last thing that you know got us out of the last emergency. And then people will finally realize they got nothing left. They just keep printing dollars every time there's a problem and I'm going to get out of dollars. Right. So the dollar is kind of like in the current system, the thing at the top of the pyramid. And so as all of these risks roll together and roll kind of up, Eventually, that is what we find ourselves at, is that the dollar itself and the status that it has as a useful currency really does wind up being what's at risk. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, this is partly perhaps in a, you know, making an excuse, but a lot of us after 2008, 2009, when the Fed started doing all those rounds of QE, we were very concerned about consumer price inflation. You know, is gasoline going to get really expensive? Is bread going to you know, measured in dollars? And that didn't happen. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff if you want to talk about in terms of how they produce those statistics. But it wasn't like it was in 1979 where Americans were realizing, whoa, we got serious price inflation. And I think part of what happened there is just, yeah, the bond investors around the world trusted that Bernanke wasn't crazy. And that, well, no, he's going on 60 minutes and assuring us that if inflation starts getting out of hand, he literally snaps his fingers and says, we'll deal with it. And so I just don't have faith in the authorities the way apparently most of the investors around the world do. 
And so, you know, it remains to be seen. Maybe they're right and I'm being paranoid. But yeah, the, I don't see how they get out of this. Another way of looking at it is like the U.S. government ran trillion dollar deficits for four years in a row under the Obama administration. That's not the spending. That's how much they borrowed each year. And yet yields on treasuries are at rock bottom levels. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And so I think that people realize the fundamentals here don't add up and that, yeah, there's going to be this huge reckoning. And just right now, the only thing that's kept it afloat, I think, is that people said, come on, the central bankers, especially the people at the Fed, they're not stupid. Surely, you know, if they're doing this, they'll be able to reverse it before anything really bad happens. And once they lose confidence in it, it can unravel really fast. Yeah. It's a lot of the philosophy that informs Austrian economics that serves as the foundation for Bitcoin. You know, in the very early days of trying to evangelize for Bitcoin, a massive head turner for the vast majority of people you spoke to was that Bitcoin had a stated supply curve that wouldn't deviate, wouldn't change, and irrespective of any market condition, is known and non-adjustable. And for people who are just, you know, amateur economists who don't really dig deeply into these things, that is shocking. And then for people who are even professionals in this space, that is shocking as well. The only thing that I uh, contend against how you were introduced, Bob, is that I don't ever like to put the qualifier Austrian in front of economists because I think they're just economists and then they're Keynesian economists. (laughs) But at a base level, it comes down to philosophy. And the moment you hear the word hoarding coming out of a person's mouth, you're talking to a Keynesian because savings is in and of itself an evil concept. I mean, I'm in my late 20s, about to hit the big 3-0, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess. And all the comparables my age, you just look at how impossible it is to live a life without being in crippling debt. And that's because the structure that we have says savings is evil, debt is good, and it's manifested in the government and in the individual life. And if anyone believes maybe we should be saving more, like that's the entire Austrian philosophy. And basically what's manifested in Bitcoin are these people who deeply believe in savings. Yeah, I want to follow up to that, Jonathan, because Bob, we recently did a live show, all of us together, and we received a question from the audience about basically like describe a world in which money gains value over time, like basically a deflationary currency is like the main deal. What do you think about that? How does it affect people psychologically if a child grows up in a world where if they save, they're going to have a lot more value in the future versus it doesn't really make sense to save with the current economic incentives because, you know, it's just going to inflate away. Sure. So you're exactly right. And historically in the United States, you know, when the dollar was really tied to gold, it wasn't crazy. Like if somebody got paid dollars for something, you might literally just hang on to the actual currency or, you know, if you had a gold coin too, but since the dollar was rigidly tied to gold, it was the same thing. And so it wasn't considered crazy to just literally hang on to your currency to save it, you know, have some of your wealth, if you will, in cash. Whereas nowadays, when people say, oh, I'm in cash, they don't actually mean I have $100 bills. What they mean is I have like a money market fund that's in real short-term bonds that still earn an interest rate. And so you're right, especially when Nixon took the US off the gold standard the last vestiges of it. From that point forward, people say, oh, you can't just have dollars. That would be crazy because of inflation. And that's where you see people getting more into the stock market. So I should just say that in case some of your listeners don't know, you know, back in like the year 1915, it wasn't that every person, you know, out of their paycheck went and bought shares of US corporate stocks and thought, "Oh, that's my retirement." You know, that would have been considered investing or even speculation. You would save by like buying bonds from the railroad company or, you know, having a big life insurance policy, stuff like that. 
or you know maybe have a literal savings account with your local commercial bank. And so, but those things, as you say, Stephanie, like in the seventies in particular, with price inflation going up, that was deemed to be you know for suckers. And so people thought, oh, I got to get into the stock market, otherwise I'm going to get killed. And that, of course, made people even more insecure because the stock market's so much more volatile than some of these other fixed income assets. Even more pernicious than that is when the government put a gun to everyone's head and said, take 16% of everything you'll ever make in your entire life and give it to us to manage. Oh, wow, look at that. Every time the bankers do something, it affects every single American. I wonder why. Oh, that's right. Because they forced us to be in Social Security. Right. And you can't even determine the structure of the exposure that you have. So it's insane. Everyone's like, why is it that this little tiny industry called Wall Street affects every American? And you even have the most pernicious thing in Social Security and the compelled ways in which they dictate you can even spend your money, just systematizing all of this nonsense to every human. Yeah, I agree with all that. And then to just elaborate upon what Stephanie's question was, I think you're right, Stephanie, that to me, it is a more deep-seated psychological, almost cultural thing where if the very money people use just sort of erodes over time and in terms of its purchasing power, I think that, yeah, that does train up you know, generations who are growing up in that sort of framework. I think surely that makes saving seem like something silly and for suckers. And that's not a good thing in general. And so, yes, you guys are right that the Keynesian mindset in general, saving can screw things up. That all oh, people, there's what's called the paradox of saving because it's like, oh, if you don't spend, then somebody else's income goes down. And so in the Keynesian framework, it could be very problematic if too many people try to save at once. And that's the Keynesian diagnosis as to what happened after 2008. They said there was this housing bubble. The households and businesses naturally you know, got very conservative. They reduced their discretionary spending in order to work off you know, the debts on their balance sheet. And that might have been rational from an individual perspective, but from the economy as a whole, that just crushed income across the board because everybody's spending is somebody else's income. And the Austrians just reject that analysis. Like prices can drop for one thing. So that, you know, just the, a lot of the Keynesian framework relies on assumptions that aren't necessarily true, but you know, just 30,000 foot view. Yeah. The Keynesians are very concerned about saving. Whereas the Austrians would say, yeah, actually what you want is when there's a crisis for people to save more. Cause that's what frees up resources to go where they're most urgently needed and that kind of just lines up with common sense. Like I think people just intuitively realize if the reason we were had a crisis in 2008 is because people weren't saving enough and they were buying houses that were bigger than they really could afford, you don't fix that by then having the government borrow a bunch of money and spend it on stuff and who cares what it is. And yet that's what the Keynesians were saying, which is, you know, it's kind of nutty. And I think you see this most manifested in Bitcoin culturally when we refer to savers as hodlers. They're the ideal and the thing you want to be. And, you know, you're proud of the fact that you're a saver. You know, the entire Bitcoin community calls savings hodling and it's an ideal. It's not the Keynesian notion of hoarding, just like this horrible thing. It also, just in terms of the technicalities of it, was really interesting is because I think some people might object to what I'm saying and argue, well, no, I mean, put aside extreme Keynesians, but in general, mainstream economy, they weren't against saving and investing. It's just a particular asset portfolio. And yeah, if your currency is declining over time, then you get into other stuff. But then again, that's forcing you. It's not just that you're deferring consumption, but you're having to pick particular asset classes and they have different characteristics. And so, yeah, the beauty of something like if everybody used Bitcoin as their money and then people who want to just hold Bitcoin as prices quoted in Bitcoin's decline over time as the Bitcoin gets stronger, you're still saving and deferring consumption, but you're not committing yourself to any particular 
you know, he's not, you're in stocks or you're in real estate in New Zealand or whatever, you know what I mean? So it, that's like the most liquid of assets is whatever the money is for a community. So economically speaking, there is a difference. It depends on what you save in. So if everybody's saved by building apartment complexes, you know, that's one way to provide for the future. But what if you're not a landlord? Saving literally by just accumulating what the money is, that's like the most generic thing where you're not committing to any particular thing, which is what a lot of average people want to do when they, quote, want to save for the future. You know, I think, and tell me if you agree with this, Bob, economics is about psychology a lot. It's about the study of human action, right? Which is like the title of, you know, a very famous book about the subject, right? Ludwig von Mises. And this is the most fascinating thing to me is like, you are actually studying how people behave and how they respond to incentives. And what Austrian economics says is that people are rational. They respond to the incentives that are out there and they're making rational choices for themselves and for their own future. And like, it's just that sometimes the incentives are really screwed up, especially in the current culture. And I wanted to ask you about one thing that I've heard Austrian economists say a lot is that central banks actually obscure or confuse people about what is the real rate of inflation compared to what they say it is. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then how do those confusing incentives affect people's behavior? Okay, sure. So one thing that's a more longstanding observation from the Austrian school is Mises would often say, part of the problem of what happens when there's a credit expansion, like an inflationary boom, is that prices are rising and the average business person their sales are increasing and, oh, wow, it looks like business is great and they hire more workers. And if they're not fully taking into account how much of that apparent prosperity is just because of the printing press, then they might not be setting aside enough of their new revenues to replace their worn out capital equipment to you know, replenish their inventory, stuff like that. And so what ends up happening is the normal person in the midst of an inflationary boom probably underestimates how much of that is just due to the printing press and, and they overestimate how much is because, oh, well, you know, I'm a really good worker. That's why I got a raise from my boss. Or, oh, my business, you know, I'm a good entrepreneur. I really saw this market, you know, ahead of time. And that's why my sales are going through the roof. And so you're actually not saving enough out of that. And so you end up consuming capital because, you know, if your revenues are going up mostly because of inflation, not because you're capturing more of the market or something. So that's one thing he said. And another related issue is, when the government's put out these official reports, yeah, they have all these tricks to systematically undercount it. So I'll just give you a couple examples, like the US federal government, the Federal Reserve, their preferred measure of price inflation is the growth in what they call personal consumption expenditures, right? So it's not even like, oh, what's the CPI year over year? And then sometimes too, they even strip out food and energy prices because they say, oh, well, that's real volatile. We don't want to make monetary policy decisions just because the price of oil went up or something like that. But it's like for most households, food and energy prices are two of the most important things. And so again, it's like they come up with all these ways to minimize the actual increase in the prices that households have to pay. And then another loose joint in their calculations is they make what's called hedonic adjustments, you know, like a hedonism. There's nothing crazy about the basic theory of the principle. The idea is it would be silly to look at like what's the price of a new car from 1960 forward to measure the price inflation because the quality of the car obviously is better. If you buy a car in 2019, that's a much better vehicle than a car your dad bought in 1969. But again, it gives them a lot of flexibility where if the actual sticker price on some piece of equipment goes up 10%, but then they can argue, oh, but the quality went up 8%, then they can say, so really quality adjusted price inflation was only 2%. 
So a lot of the official numbers in the CPI use little tricks like that to minimize. And one last thing I'll mention, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like right after the crash in 08, 09, producer prices really were going up. And that didn't translate so much into the CPI. And part of what was going on is stuff like at the grocery store, cereal boxes, you know, how they're cardboard, they got much thinner. Like the actual box that your cereal came in, they got a little flimsier and like paper towels got thinner and, you know, toilet paper, instead of being two pieces of paper stuck together, it was only one. Businesses did a lot of stuff like that to lower the quality because they didn't want to have to pass on the price increases because they knew unemployment was up and people were panicked and they knew they couldn't just pass along if cardboard prices went up 13%. They had to eat it somehow, and so they reduced how much cardboard they were using. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another sponsored minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrency. Hi, Paul. Hey, Adam. Happy to announce today that we are really bringing the power of decentralized exchanges to the masses. As many people know, decentralized exchanges really provide the permissionless access to be able to exchange many different cryptocurrencies independent of a centralized third party making that decision for them. Today, we're announcing integration with Total. It's an API that allows Edge to connect to multiple independent decentralized exchanges or DEXs to provide liquidity for the currency pair that a user is wanting to swap. Not only does Edge connect to these decentralized exchanges through Total, but they actually connect to conventional exchange partners such as Changely and ChangeNow and Shapeshift, and it'll actually find the best price for the currency pair a user wants to swap in the amount that they want to swap, really folding these DEXs into the mix seamlessly with other centralized exchanges. So we're excited to hear what people have to say. Head on over to our website and give it a shot and send us your feedback. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks a whole lot, Paul. Thanks much, Adam. One of the things that's been really interesting to me about trying to understand how we measure a lot of stuff in our world is that understanding of there are real incentives for doing these sorts of obfuscations at the company level, right? Because as you're saying, you know, if somebody is producing cereal and their costs go up, Well, they don't want to be the first company to raise prices because that could mean that they could lose market share to another company they're competing with that doesn't. And so on that side of it, that makes sense to me why those things get passed along and why instead of prices going up, we see, for example, you know, the size of chips going from 18 ounces to, you know, 11 ounces for the same price effectively. The bag stays the same, but what it contains gets shrunk as a way to pass along that cost without actually passing along a cost increase. But if you look at it from the kind of meta perspective, and you look at the statistics that the government itself generates, what's the incentive there? The government isn't competing with anybody else. So it's kind of felt to me like it has to be about just controlling the optics and controlling the narrative about what's actually happening and why it's happening as a means to protect power or things like that. Why does the government treat statistics the way that they do? Yeah, it is funny that And I do this too in my work as an economist, especially if I'm speaking to a quote regular crowd, you know, who aren't libertarian ideologues, the way I get credibility and it doesn't look like I'm stacking the deck is I use the official numbers on stuff, you know, like, oh, this was from the government, you know, and it's kind of funny that that does still have this sort of, you know, veneer of these are official numbers and this is the best we can get. So part of it comes from the fact that the government has special, like if you're going to do a study on income inequality, 
you have to use the tax data that the IRS has. You know what I mean? Because you know, no other organization has access to all that information, but the IRS does. And so that's part of it. And the same thing like the CPI and things like that, there's a lot of reporting requirements. And so the government has access to a lot of information that no private organization would have. And you're right. A lot of people don't trust the numbers coming out of China, for example, like their GDP and whatever. A lot of people are skeptical, but for whatever reason, the U.S. authorities are considered more credible than many other governments. So I think you're right. I think everybody takes these things with a grain of salt, but it's partly like that's the conversation starter. And so people can, you know, what's the official measure? What's the official unemployment rate? It's such and such. And then people can start to peel back the layers and say, well, what goes into that number? Well, there's people who dropped out of the labor force. We got to worry about this. But yeah, that's always the conversation starter. And I think you're right. I guess they can't be too ludicrous about it because then, you know, if it was so blatant, like if price inflation really were 20% and they're saying it's two, the, the illusion would be broken. Whereas right now, I think that it's plausible that the average person says, oh, I don't think they're systematically lying to us. I think another thing that comes into play here is that if you're trying to say that it's 20% in Venezuela as the government, then you're going to be laughed out of the room, right? So to a large degree, the ability for these numbers to be treated as plausible has a lot to do with how much they're impacting your life, right? If inflation really is a problem for you, it really doesn't matter what number they're going to say, even if that number is 10% or 50% or whatever. If the real number is higher, then it's just a lot harder for these numbers to be plausible, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good point in some respect. Like, why does the average person even care whatever the Bureau of Labor Statistics says? If you don't have a job, your unemployment rate's 100%. I think, though, that's part of the insidious nature of, like, why is it that governments resort to inflation rather than just taxing? And it's because when the government wants to spend money in it taxes, people directly know, like, if you're writing checks to the government or you can see your pay stub, you know exactly where the pain's coming from, whereas the government runs the printing press just prices in general are going. So they're still siphoning those real resources away from you just as surely as if they taxed you, you know, because they're building tanks, you know, the steel and rubber and glass that has to come from somewhere. It's not free if they run the printing press. But if they're, quote, paying for it by inflation, it's harder for the public to know exactly where that's coming from. And so if things are just getting expensive, like the public might blame labor unions or they might blame greedy corporations if really the reason it's expensive is because the printing press that's a lot harder to pin down. And so, yeah, I think the function of putting out bogus numbers is to keep the public not knowing where the true culprit is. Just like, you know, 1984, if the government keeps announcing that they're increasing the food ration, even though they decreased it, I mean, people's bellies aren't going to be fooled by an announcement. But why are they doing that then? I think it's just because they want to confuse the public and not let them realize, oh, the reason your belly is quaking right now is because we reduced the food ration. Like North Korea, these totalitarian regimes, they rely more on propaganda than anywhere else. So that's the way a regime stays in power is it has to convince people that, oh, no, this we're doing the best we can for you. I kind of want to summarize it as because it's easier, right? It almost doesn't matter what of these questions you're applying it to. The answer to why are they doing it that way is because it's easier. So turning to kind of the reason why I really want to have you on is, again, talking about this reserve currency thing, transitions to and from, why we pick, uh, if we pick, if it's like a thing that happens. So reserve currencies are a product of empire through history, it seems like. Before it was dollars, it was British pounds. Before it was British pounds, it was Spanish dollars. 
Is the conversion from one reserve currency, you know, regime to another typically a managed transition process? Or is it more like the current status quo has to fail and then a replacement is elected because it's the least dirty shirt? I guess I would say like, so the switch over from the British pound to the American dollar, I don't think they just made some decision in a back room and then the next day you saw a huge percentage swing. I think that was more of a gradual thing. And obviously, World Wars One and Two really knocked down the preeminence of the British Empire. And also, too, at that point, still gold, in a sense, was the world's true currency until the 1930s, I would say. And then because the dollar was linked to gold, I think that's really what ended up happening. So clearly, a major shift was the Bretton Woods Conference. So in that respect, you could say, yeah, that was managed and that was an intentional thing from technocrats. Whereas nowadays, you can look at the percent that the U.S. dollar is of global official reserves. And so like during the 70s, that was above 80%. And that came down drastically in the 1980s forward. And I would say that I think that's largely because the dollar was no longer linked to gold. That the reason people were holding dollar-denominated assets as reserves wasn't because they trust the dollar per se, but because it was linked to gold. And then once that link was taken, you know, the share fell roughly in half. And then it marched back up. Now with the euro, it's going back down again. So I think, yeah, over time, you'll just see the dollar gradually shrinking while the other ones expand. But then I do think there's going to be a crisis at some point. And so, you know, and that's, it's hard to put your finger on, but yeah, I think maybe not this next one, but the one after, if people just lose faith in the dollar, you could see that flipping really fast where people move to, you know, gold, other commodities and and crypto. So before Nixon closed the gold window, you know, talking about prior reserve currencies, it wasn't so much about the reserve currency as it was that the reserve currency was a trusted vehicle for gold. Right. So in the United States, before Franklin Roosevelt, the dollar, it was what, $20.67 for an ounce of gold. So anybody could do that. Like just normal Joe Blow could go to the treasury office or even a bank, I think, turn in dollars and get gold back. I mean, there'd be like a fee at the pay, you know, a handling fee. But if you had dollars, those were redemption tickets to give you actual gold. And that was true for anybody. And that's partly why everyone, you know, was happy to use dollars. But before the dollar, that was also true of the British pound, right? Oh, right. right. Yeah. I mean, the classical, yeah, right before World War I, the classical gold standard era, all the major powers were linked to gold. And that was why you had fixed exchange rates, right? So like the dollar pound exchange rate, it was $4.86 because that was the respective you know, redemption ratios. And so like if the actual exchange ratio moved too much, people would just sell the overvalued currency for gold, ship the gold across the ocean, then deposit it with the other central bank. So yeah, before World War I, when all the major powers were on gold, it was like gold was the world's currency and the national sovereign currencies were just sort of an accounting detail. So really, the advantage that empire brought in that circumstance to, you know, the British Empire or, you know, the Spanish Empire before that was that they were large and that they were stable and that they were, for the most part, at least, you know, before their end periods, they were cash flow positive, right? They're actually making money, kind of the engines of, uh, you know, in some cases, not through great ways. But that seems like an important characteristic, that largeness and that profitability and motility within the space seems like important characteristics that made it so that that was a currency that could be trusted. And then as we're saying, you know, since everything was kind of based in gold anyways, and it was really just like, what's the high level representation of gold that you're using on a transactional basis, the transition from one reserve currency to another 
would have been that. It would have been people redeeming the old currency in one economy, getting the gold out, pulling that out of that economy and taking it to a different one. You know, in the case after World War II, perhaps the U.S. was the one. And so then that forms sort of the best place and the best way to represent gold in a common fashion. I think so, yeah. If you're in the year 1905 and you're in some foreign country somewhere and you ultimately what you want is gold, but to carry around like gold bars is you know cumbersome. So you actually want to just have someone else holding the gold on your behalf and you want to have claim tickets to it and you could have it in your local bank. But if you're in some small country somewhere, like for you to engage in international commerce, yeah, you'd have to first convert your holdings to have you know something from the Bank of England or whatever. That would be a much more liquid asset. So yeah, that's part of it. And so what determines that? Yeah, you could say it's empire, but I would say it's also just like the share of commerce. How big of an economy is this? How much international finance gets conducted through New York versus London, stuff like that. I mean, it all kind of goes hand in hand that the bigger the economy, the more transactions on planet earth that happen to be denominated in dollars, you know, that's going to make an issue when you're holding reserves, you'd have more dollars if that's the case. It's kind of like if you're going to learn a language right now, you know, oh, it makes sense to learn English because a lot of people use English. So it only stops making sense to use English at the point where the English language stops actually functioning, you know, in a way that's actually broadly useful to everybody. And we can kind of transpose this poorly onto the money situation, too, if uh, value is a language. Yeah. If for some reason that every time you used English words, a tenth of your tongue fell off. Yeah. People would stop using the real fast. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I had kind of been thinking about this as, well, it jumps from country to country based on perhaps economic importance or empire or something like that. But it actually seems like gold played a really, really important role in this system, and especially in the transitions from one reserve currency to another, because there was something underlying. And as you said, in 1971, Nixon closed the gold window, stopped the convertibility even for countries. And since then, we've been in kind of, I guess, what we have to call an experiment, where there is no value backing to the currency in the same way, and it's backed effectively by itself. So just thinking about how transitions have taken place in the past versus a potential transition in the future, do you have any idea how it would even work since there's no liquidity draining mechanism? Isn't this like a problem where I issue IOUs to everybody and then everybody saves my IOUs as money? And now if I say, well, I'm not going to honor those IOUs, then that means other people have to decide independently they're valuable just because they're an IOU, even though they know I'm not going to honor it. question to tack onto this is like, what are the qualities of an ideal or good reserve currency? What makes a reserve currency superior? I think I can answer all that. So after World War II, like the Bretton Woods Agreement, the reason other central banks were happy to use gold, and part of it, I'm sure, was the fact that the U.S. had atomic weapons, and so they had a lot of leverage when they were making these negotiations. But the reason their demands weren't completely ludicrous is that, yeah, the U.S. was saying to all these other central banks, you can still redeem your dollars for gold. It does. It just, the general public can't. So when we say Nixon closed the gold window, that was the distinction that FDR said, you know, normal people can't do it from, you know, 1933 forward. But when Nixon came in the early 70s to do it, that was saying even other central banks now lose this ability to transform their dollars into actual gold. So that was one thing that was in gold's favor. And then because the U.S. was a big, powerful government with a large economy, with a big tax base, it was thought that, yeah, I mean, if I have a treasury, if I lend money to the U.S. government and they owe me $1,000, according to them, in five years, they're going to be able to come up with it. Like even if they have a bad economy or whatever, 
I don't think they're going to default because they realize they're a powerful thing and it would be silly for them to squander their credibility from a one-time default. So I think that's part of what goes on. Um, And then you're right, in the 70s, once Nixon takes that away, it was sort of a weird thing where, gee, everybody had been holding dollars ultimately because it was backstopped by the ability to redeem it for gold. And then once they took that redemption away, because everyone had just gotten used to using dollars, it kind of continued. But now, you know, there wasn't that anchor. And so, you know, that's part of the, I think what happened And some gold bugs thought, oh, the dollar is going to go to zero immediately. And that didn't happen. You know, there's inertia and what money is, is a commonly accepted medium of exchange. And so even if the original thing that made it get commonly accepted goes away, as long as people are still using it, ultimately that can justify its continued use. Just like, why do you accept dollars right now in exchange for selling something? It's because you predict correctly that people will accept it when you go to spend the dollars next week. So there's sort of this built-in self-fulfilling prophecy, but it does get tricky when there's no anchor there holding it down. So Stephen, you were asking about attributes. So part of it is, you know, is the underlying commodity something that you'd want to have or asset something that's not going to be wildly volatile in terms of its price, but also things like the liquidity, the depth of the market. So that's why even during the classical gold standard period, when technically all these different currencies were redeemable in gold, it would make more sense to have dollars or pounds rather than some smaller government's notes, just because if you need to move in and out of that, there wouldn't be as many people in the market on the other side of that transaction. So just like now, if you wanted to sell a bunch of treasuries, you're going to find a buyer where if you want to sell some antique telescope, that's not very liquid. It's going to take you a long time to turn that into the asset you want. Okay. So it sounds like basically stability and liquidity are the two most important things. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, and we can certainly see cryptocurrencies serving that purpose. I don't know about stability right now, but over time and, you know. Right. The irony is that right now with Bitcoin lies things, they're very volatile. And so precisely because if there's a fear that conventional government issued fiat currencies are in trouble, then people would rush, you know, and Bitcoin's price measured in dollars, for example, could go through the roof. And so ironically, that makes people who currently have Bitcoins reluctant to go spend them just, you know, buying normal stuff because they're thinking, hey, there's a 1% chance this thing's going to, you know, triple in value over the next six months. You know, I would regret spending it. But yeah, that mentality, of course, is what prevents it from becoming a commonly accepted medium of exchange as opposed to like an asset that you're holding. So, you know, people have talked about that. And I think it's true that over time, as more and more people expand their holdings of crypto, that that speculative volatility will get dampened. Just like right now, for to give you an analogy, a lot of people say, oh, it would never make sense to go back to the gold standard because look how volatile gold prices are. But that's not really the right measure. If gold were the underlying money and if all the fiat government currencies were tied to gold again, then they wouldn't bounce around so much. It's not so much that gold is changing. It's more that the fiat currency's value is bouncing around. And because people want to go into gold, that that's you know the way they're seeing it in that exchange ratio. So there is that element. And I think you're right that if, as more and more people adopted it in terms of day-to-day use, then you would see that volatility get dampened. And yeah, in terms of the fundamentals, that inbuilt scarcity, like you guys were talking about in the beginning of this conversation, there's a sense in which Bitcoin is a harder asset than even gold or silver, because technically we could find more gold mines. Chemists could come up with a way to you know, cheaply just rearrange you know, quarks and whatever to create more gold in the lab, as it were, you know, sort of like Star Trek technology where they just have replicators. And once that happened, you know, 
no physical thing could ever really be a good money at that point. And so that's why it'd be good that, oh yeah, I'm glad we got these crypto things that mathematically they have the inbuilt scarcity. Okay. So getting back to kind of the conversation about the reserve currency stuff, I don't think it's possible right now to look at the situation and say it's going to be, you know, gold or it's going to be Bitcoin or it's going to be something like that, because I don't think that we've seen something that's analogous. So the question that I kind of wanted to ask you is, do you think that the experiment that we're currently embarking on on a global basis of having currencies and reserve currencies, which are basically untethered to gold or anything else that has real scarcity built into it, is the path that we're going to continue to follow or do you think that regardless of what the asset winds up being, that you know, will revert to the historical way that these currencies have operated for basically the reasons why they operated those ways? Sure. So let me just give the caveat here that this is pretty speculative, no pun intended, that yeah, my view is a lot of you know the smartest guys in the room and stuff, you know, the people who are on CNBC or whatever, and they poo-poo gold and whatever. We really have only been in this period of modern central banking where everything is fiat since the early 70s, right? So in the grand scheme of things, this is still a new experiment. And right when they first did it, you know, there was those significant price inflation in the US, you know, the stagflation. And then they finally thought they got it under control. And mainstream economists were saying things along the lines of, oh yeah, we've cured the business cycle. Milton Friedman had a birthday in the early 2000s, I forget which year. And there was some Fed official there that looked at him and said, you know, oh, the Great Depression was because the Fed, you know, had bad policy, but after your book with Anna Schwartz, you know, you set us straight and thanks to you, it won't happen again. You know, like famous last words a few years before the financial crisis hit. So these mainstream technocratic economists, they keep thinking they have it all set and, you know, they clearly don't know, they're bluffing. They're really smart, but they're not as smart as they think they are. And so, yeah, I think what's going to end up happening is the euro is going to be in trouble. And like I said, maybe the Fed will bail them out and then the dollar itself will be in trouble. I think at some point, like the Chinese authorities will be more sort of in your face about offering, backing up their own currency with a basket of commodities. That's what I think they would do. And so, yeah, when the world loses confidence in conventional government-issued fiat currencies, normal investors will go into if some major government has a commodity base. So it might not just be gold. It might be like a basket of commodities, including 12% gold or whatever. That's the kind of thing I think they would do and that, yeah, this experiment with totally untethered money, I think people are going to realize that was crazy. Do you think that we're moving into a period where we're going to continue to see these sort of unipolar systems where, you know, it's the U.S. government or it's the British government before that or something like that? Or do you think that with the way that the world is developing and with, you know, sanctions and kind of these alternative networks, we're more likely to see a multipolar or regional type system? I think the latter. So when I say, or when we say, oh yeah, the dollar's losing its status as the reserve currency. And you can look at the various statistics, like what's the dollar's share of global transactions, or like I said, the measurement of the dollar as a share of official reserve currencies or reserve holdings by central banks and things. It's going down. It's not that I think, oh yeah, the, the Chinese are going to replace them. And then 60 years from now, the yuan is going to be 90% of global transactions. That's not what I think. Yeah, I think there's going to be a proliferation, as you say, especially with the rise of crypto. I think more and more people are going to hold them. It might not be the average household's day-to-day transactions are mostly denominated in one particular crypto, but I think that's going to just become more of a normal thing to do, like an asset class. You know, Just like people, oh yeah, you got real estate, your bonds, stocks, or whatever, and you got your crypto. I kind of think that's going to be part of what happens. And so in some respects, Sort of like two with languages, like 
English was real dominant for a while, but I think it's not going to be nearly as dominant over the next 50 years as it was in the prior 50 years. And that most people are going to have to know multiple languages, especially if they want to work in like international finance or something. So, you know, the show's called Let's Talk Bitcoin. We haven't actually talked about Bitcoin directly really at all on this episode. Bob, before I, I let you go, I'd love to get your kind of thought on Bitcoin specifically, cryptocurrency as a movement, you know, and as a technology as a whole. Okay, sure. So I do have a guide, to, like an intro to this from an economist perspective that I co-authored with Silas Barra. It's at understandingbitcoin.us if people want to see more of my thoughts on this. But yeah, I think from an economic point of view and like a libertarian angle, what Bitcoin did is it solved the problem. So Friedrich Hayek in the 70s had a proposal for privately issued money, you know, to have like private sector analogs to central banks. And he made lots of compelling arguments that this would be, you know, there'd be more market discipline, you know, com- competition. If, if some currency was losing value too rapidly and its customers didn't like it, they could just switch to somewhere else, you know, that kind of stuff. But it would still rely on trust. You know, you had to trust the name brand of this particular private company that issued these notes. And so I think that was the, the genius technical thing that Bitcoin brought to the table was that you really could have a peer-to-peer transaction without some third party, even if it was a private sector name brand thing that you, know, you didn't have to trust them. And then, as I mentioned a minute ago, the inbuilt scarcity. To me, that's something that's a really attractive feature because, again, at some point, I think chemists and physicists are going to be able to rearrange atoms and, well, the constituents of atoms and create whatever they want in the material world. And so your money can't be reliant on, you know, some physical, tangible thing at that point, if you want to still be scarce. So I think there's that element as well. And just, you can write all the white papers you want on why the taxicab medallion monopoly is a bad thing, but people's eyes glaze over when regular people just take an Uber ride once, then they get it. And when they see the taxicab industry lobbying to get Uber out of their city, they know full well, it's not because they want to protect the public. And so likewise, you know, I can sit there and talk about the dangers of government money. When people actually use crypto, they can see that, oh, yeah, the market really can create money. Like, you know, this isn't something that has to be done by the state. So from my point of view, those are the great contributions and why Bitcoin and then the other crypto that have come in its wake, you know, that's a blessing to humanity in terms of those things. And as part of the subtext of this whole conversation, yeah, given that these government issued fiat currencies, I think, are setting us up for a disaster it's a good thing that there's going to be an infrastructure of people who have this alternative mechanism already up and running that I think the masses are going to run to. So yeah, these sort of, you know, geeky enthusiasts and early adopters, they're doing important work, just testing things out because yeah, there's going to be a flood of people down the road if this crash happens, like I'm worried about. You know, one of the really early stories that we talked about was the crisis in Greece. And Greece is a country, and more recently we've seen this in Argentina, Greece is a country and Argentina is a country that over its history has defaulted a lot of times. And they keep issuing currencies and people trust them, but it's becoming more and more difficult as time goes on. Similarly to how countries used to use gold as a way to back their currencies with gold, as a way to assure people who would accept it, that there's actually some sort of value backing behind it. It's kind of always been possible, but perhaps not palatable, at least yet, to take Bitcoin or some other type of digital asset that has value that's disconnected from the underlying country and do something very similar, except that instead of it being, you know, in a vault that has to be audited, it could actually be transparent and something that could be audited on a, you know, person by person basis, basically as they wanted, providing potentially even better assurity and better 
ability for it to imbue trust into a government currency that might not under other conditions be trustworthy. Yeah, I think what you said is right technically. Um, and I was just on Twitter getting in an argument with Joe Weisenthal, who is, you know, just matter of fact, saying no government would ever accept taxes denominated in Bitcoin because it's anarchist money, you told me. You know what I mean? So he was kind of like trying to call their bluff. And so, you know, some of us were weighing in and saying, well, no, I mean, a government could have you fill out your tax forms. If the people in the community mostly use Bitcoin, why wouldn't the government quote their taxes in that currency? But one thing, though, just to keep in mind is, like even before when I was saying it wouldn't surprise me if the Chinese authorities backed the yuan with commodities in order to get the world to rush to them once people lose faith in the dollar. If you're a government, like the benefit of having the world use your currency is you get to run the printing press, right? So it actually, my point would be once the world got used to using the yuan and trusted it, then maybe they would suspend the commodity backing so they could print more. So you actually kind of want the obfuscation after you've gotten past the adoption period, because it's the adoption period that gives you the power, but then it's the obfuscation that allows you to actually use it in ways that, you know, might not otherwise be appropriate. Right. And it means this is real simple stuff, but I mean, it's, if you have a printing, if you can legally counterfeit money, that's pretty good. Just like if you had software that let your printer in your house print off hundred dollar bills that were indistinguishable from the real thing that would be a pretty good thing. You know, that'd be a neat little trick for you to have. And, you know, you couldn't print a quadrillion of them because then you'd crash it. But the point is that would be a great little flow of income. So you wouldn't want to mess that up. So yes, the point of them wanting to do that would be, you know, they wouldn't do it out of altruism to save the world investor. They would do it because, oh yeah, long term, if we get people hooked on our currency, then we can relax these commodity backing, you know, and then we can print money when we get into a pinch. And so I think that's, a major government like the US government or the British or you know Japanese I don't think they would ever pick a true like impossible to inflate thing like bitcoin or even some cryptocurrency that just grew at a steady predetermined rate that would hem them in too much if you get what I'm saying do you think that that would also be the case if we were talking about a currency like cuz when the US dollar or any currency is backed by gold it's not like you're actually transacting the gold. It's that there's an amount of dollars and then there's an amount of gold in the background and the ratio between those two matters. I sort of imagine it being the same thing here. I don't think that Greece wouldn't issue a drachma or would issue a gold drachma. I think they would just issue a drachma that in the background has a value backing that is transparent cryptocurrencies. Because again, the point is trying to give credibility to a currency, but I hear what you're saying too. Yeah. Yeah. So let me clarify. You, you actually just raised a good distinction there, subtlety. So, right. For example, like I said, the Chinese authorities, if they back the yuan with commodity basket, who's to say that Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ethereum could be percentage portions of that basket? So that would be the sense. Because, yeah, it's not that the algorithm, you know, and the proof of work and everything is pinning down how many yuan they can issue. They can just say tomorrow, oh, yeah, we, we said that if you turn these in, we'd give you 100 Bitcoins, but we won't now. Sorry, there's a you know, speculative attack. Right. So yeah, if they're just linking it to a cryptocurrency, then yeah, there's nothing stopping them from reneging on that down the road, in which case, yeah, they very well might do that. I just meant in terms of a government wouldn't want to literally like outsource its monetary policy and say, the currency in our region is Bitcoin. You see what I'm saying? Because then, yeah, they wouldn't be able to cheat once the public got hooked on using Bitcoins, they couldn't easily get them off onto something else. You know, this is just an aside, but can you think of any examples through history where governments haven't 
<laughs> cheated where they haven't used money in ways that wound up being irresponsible? Or is this just sort of like a fixture of history that systems might start off productive, but that as time goes on, this power becomes corrosive? No, I can't think of an example. And it's amazing to me that you know people would trust the state with this power. You know, like you, you wouldn't trust the CEO of a regular company with it, right? Like somebody said, hey, let's give the printing press to Walmart, but hey, you know, we'll give them a dual mandate and say, you know, don't let price inflation get too high as you print hundred dollar bills and you can spend that on whatever you want. You know, that'd be insane. Nobody would trust that. And yet we're gonna trust, you know, the political class to be responsible with money. That's just nutty. And yeah, going back, I mean, famously the Caesars would clip coins and stuff. And that's why there's, you know, those notches around the circumference of a standard coin. The historical function of that was so that you couldn't shave gold or silver off the edges of the coin, right? Like, cause if you had the notches and someone tried to shave it off, it'd be obvious. So, I mean, that's the reason you have stuff like there is to prevent people from cheating. And that's like the term debasement, where that comes from is you would take the coins of a certain weight and you'd melt them down and then mix in a base metal and then recoin them. So you'd make more coins than the original batch. So the gold or the silver would get diluted. So yeah, that's standard stuff going back thousands of years. I mean, as far as we know. It's a 4,000 year old anti-Italian technology. <laughs> just, you know, whenever you give money to an Italian, you got to worry, are those ridges still there on that quarter? <laughs> and 4,000 years later, we're still dealing with that blight today. <laughs> so I actually had a question and this is one that, you know, is a whole world in and of itself. But I've been surrounded by so many people who say token economics, token economics, blockchain this. And it's a lot of people either reinventing the wheel on just basic economics or just you know not really knowing what they're doing and just seeing what happens. In your understanding and exploration of this space, are there any sort of macro or micro things from an Austrian perspective that you think are fundamentally missing or that you think are done in a silly way that could be done way better that you're seeing many projects or protocols experimenting with now that you wish were done differently. Okay, so I'm not going to say anything specific number 1 just to, you know, be more discreet, but also number 2 because I you guys know this stuff, you know, I haven't really kept up to speed with all the latest developments, so you know, anything I said would be probably 5 years obsolete. But yeah, if this is what you're getting and I have had people like hire me to just kind of look over what they're doing and give them my feedback as an economist who's somewhat familiar with crypto. And yeah, it does seem like a lot of these things I'll say to the person, okay, but in step eight of what you're doing here, you know, you're losing the whole benefit of it being a crypto coin because you know, this step you're relying on, you know, some outside assessor to come in and say what the market value of this property is that you're backing with the token. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff where I, whatever their business plan was, I would be able to point to a particular step in the argument where it was relying on some third party. And I was like, isn't that the whole point? So to answer your question, yeah, I think there is a thing where a lot of people are, oh, there's this now, this tokenization is so hot right now, we got to get into this. And so there is that element. On the other hand, I do think it's not that there's something wrong with the technology or the idea, it's just you know, to get the application right. I agree with the people who say the real innovation with Bitcoin was the blockchain technology of which you know, having a money or a medium of exchange or a means of payment which is one potential application that it's the more fundamental, you know, blockchain technology is the thing that's really going to revolutionize humanity. So yeah, I definitely agree with that, you know, to be able to have land titles registered on the blockchain. So it's harder for the government to seize your property. You know, the community knows, yeah, that guy owns that house. And if the government takes it with guns, okay, but we all really know what's up, you know, that kind of stuff. 
it seems like that's really the fundamental underlying thing here about this technology in general is that the consensus mechanism allows us to track ownership in ways that typically have required central authorities. And now it really doesn't require central authorities. So we're applying that to money with lots of projects like Bitcoin and applying it to basically everywhere else in the internet. And the real problem is that not all that information is on the blockchain yet. And when the information isn't on the blockchain, then inherently you're inserting somebody who has to put it on the blockchain in order for the blockchain to know about it. And then you've introduced that sort of problem there. So it has both advantages in that it makes the sort of ownership possible, but we still have a lot of ways to go in terms of figuring out how to get really good data into the blockchain in order to use it in a trustless fashion. That's a great way of putting it. And that's, like I said, the specific problems I was having with some of these things that people were having me just review is that, yeah, it was like there was some critical step where, you know, how are you going to control how that information gets out of the blockchain, as you say, and that there it was requiring, oh, well, this group over here is going to do it. I was like, well, what if they're corrupt? Yeah, the council approach. We've seen that over and over and over again. And it's always so appealing because people look at the real world and they say, well, how do we solve these problems there? And that's how we solve these problems. But as you say, it's exactly sort of the opposite of the advantages that are really introduced by the technology. So on that note, because so much of the philosophy and understanding of Bitcoin comes from Austrian economics, and you're such a great outspoken voice to that end. If listeners or people wanted to learn more about Austrian economics or learn about sort of the fundamentals of economics, and then as they're thinking about applying that to their blockchain projects, where could they find more of your research, your talks, and things that you think you should point them to? Probably the best single thing to do is just give my personal website. So that's consultingbyrpn.com. So consultingbyrpn.com. And there I have links to all my, you know, the different places I write for, my Bitcoin guide, stuff like that. Great. And uh, I just checked out and Contra Krugman is on Audible. So if anyone uh, wants to get that book, I just got it. So uh, maybe we'll be doing a review of it sometime in the future. Yeah, that would be great. There's a lot of different topics I cover in there. And, you know, the essays are short and punchy. So you can just sit down and read it for 15 minutes and get something out of it. Yeah, I I like to think of it as getting vaccinated because when you get into finance, a lot of times you're surrounded by so many Keynesians that you just need to be just vaccinated enough that your immune system can withstand their toxicity. We take small and relatively harmless samples of Keynesian thought and inject it into your head and then show you how to fight it off. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by Edge.app and featured Bob Murphy, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Stephen and featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.